And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. The race is on, and Alpine has joined the F1 2022 party by revealing the new A522 in a launch in Paris, although actually all it did was reveal two show cars with a different livery on each, given the real car is being assembled in Barcelona. But we did get some renders of the genuine article, meaning it's ninth of the new cars we've been able to take a look at. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer all your Alpine questions are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well, Mark, another launch without real cars. It's been a bit of a mixed bag this year, but given Alpine is supposed to be running on a filming day in Barcelona tomorrow, that's perhaps a perfectly reasonable excuse. It does sound like it's a little bit of a rush to get the car together, though, which obviously isn't that unusual at this time of year. Yeah, they're a little bit, um, I think, a a little bit behind schedule in in the build in general from what I've been hearing. Um, And so, you know, it's uh, it's more important to have the car running um, than to have the... The actual car at the at the launch, but um, I I think the the launch being so late probably tells you where they're, they're really at as well. Um, but none of that will matter if um, if the car's good. So um, let's let's see. And Gary, obviously late launch, bit of a rush to get the car going. That probably sounds quite familiar. Yeah, I mean all this render stuff has taken over from that. I mean I, I remember many times a few bits of tank tape and. Uh, and a few wooden blocks underneath the chassis holding it up and making it look good was uh, was the order of the day. But it is a bit disappointing that we've got to that level where, you know, the teams can't be honest with us. The whole thing about Formula One is it's all about sponsorship. And all those names on the sides of the car, like it or, or lump it, it's, it, that's what pays for it all. So at the end of the day, you know, the media, I'm not saying just us, but the media in general, are the people that take that message to the public. And uh, it would be nice if they'd sort of, the teams would recognise that, that the media are quite important in this equation because at the end of the day, you know, people aren't going to sponsor cars if nobody sees what's going on. So 
a lot of it is promotion of the sponsor, but you know, be honest about it. And I was disappointed today whenever the the head honchos at the, at the Alpine were standing up and saying about a shield car that isn't it beautiful, isn't it just a great creation? It's, it's just it's just not true, and that's that's really wrong. Yeah, the the artifice of some of these launches is is not ideal, but at least we have got some images of the car that we can take a little bit of a a look at. The most obvious thing, Gary, is that it's a much less thick set car compared to last year, partly because the cooling system for the power unit package is apparently 15% smaller, which is a big step. Do you think Alpine's made good use of those gains? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the first thing you do, obviously. It's it's not necessarily that the the componentry is 15% smaller. Um, It's probably because the the power unit package as a a whole needs 15% less cooling. And that means you can have better flow through the radiators, etc. So it's it's one of those things where that optimizes the aerodynamic surface of the car um, and, and basically gives you more downforce. You know, any airflow you can use to to uh, give you downforce uh, is obviously going on to surfaces which are not there for cooling. If you once you take it into the radiator ducts and, and drive it, you know, suck it or push it through the radiators. Um, you then end up it's got no energy left to do anything with. So you have to just accept the fact that if your engine is putting out a lot of heat, um, and then you have to cool it. Uh, and that heat is also, it's still making power. You only put a certain amount of fuel into the into an engine, so it, it makes X amount of power. Some of that will come out as heat, some of that will come out as power at the rear axle. The more you can put out as power at the rear axle, the less you put out as heat. So... It's a, it's a simple equation, really. Whenever we went, you know, years ago, going way back, when we went from the Ford HB to the Yamaha engine, the different cooling requirements like like night and day. You know, you needed twice the radiators to to actually cool the car, so the packaging became impossible. Um, so they'll benefit from that dramatically because that's something you can't basically do anything about. You know, if you need it, you need it, uh, and you have to keep the car temperature under control. So. Fifteen percent will be a big, big benefit for uh, for Alpine this year. Yeah, it certainly led to a slightly more tidy car. Mark, while we're on the power unit, Renault has gone to the split turbo. Finally, Mercedes pioneered that back in twenty fourteen. Honda followed in twenty seventeen. So it's about time, really, isn't it? Well, do you think so? I mean, the the, the, the there are pros and cons of each, but it, it always seemed logical that the split turbo was. Um, Better in terms of the, the 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 routing, the plumbing that you had to do for the intercooler, etc. Um, yeah, and it, it very it, apparently when the when it was first done, I remember sort of asking Andy Cow, "Why do you think everybody hasn't gone down this route?" And he said, "Because it's bloody difficult to do. It's very very difficult to get that shaft to go through the middle at those revs um, without getting catastrophic failures." So um, I can't believe it's taken this long because it's so difficult to do but um it's it, yeah it would seem to be the the logical route but um ferrari even with their new power unit have, have kept with the old combined turbo so it's it's not uh, you know it's probably not um a slam dunk switch i wouldn't have thought but it, it just logically it it seems a the, the the right way to go if you can make it reliable um we're hearing that it might not be all that reliable at the moment um but uh, let's wait and see yeah the thing about the the split turbo for me is you've got you got one part of the turbo combination the, the uh, exhaust turbine where you're you know you want it to run as hot as possible to keep the energy in it to to generate as much um 
forces can be required on the MG UK, um, or the MG UH, sorry, and um, and then you want the, the other part to be as cool as possible, so it gives you the best um, the coolest temperature going into the plenum. And if you set those two side by side, uh, it seems a bit illogical because one of them you want to be down at you know, ambient temperature if you could, 20 degrees or something, the other one you want to be at 1,000 degrees, 1,200 degrees if you could. So the insulation between those two is very difficult, and the best way to do that is to separate them by about two feet. Um, so in the middle of that is an electric motor, basically, as well, um, which you can use to spool up the turbo, or you can use to um, react against the exhaust gas pressures to charge the battery up. So it has no easy feat to do that. You know, all that stuff that has to go on inside of there is 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 quite quite dramatic. And and the fact there's a there's an RPM limit on it of hundred, I think it's one hundred twenty five thousand RPM. Yeah, that's I'm not joking. That's one hundred twenty five thousand RPM. So that's the maximum. But if you're getting anywhere near that, that's a that's something going at a hell of a lick. That's a soul machine job, you know. So it's uh, it's pretty difficult to engineer that in one file swoop. So I wouldn't be surprised to see it being a, a reliable issue for Renault. It seems to have been pushed into doing this finally by the imminent engine freeze. They've realised they've really got to go for it. I think there's been a feeling, certainly from the top of Alpine, that perhaps the engine side has been a little bit conservative and they've also tried to really push integrating the two sides, Enstone and Viri. And in fact, Matt Harmon, the new technical director, he comes from a Mercedes powertrains background. So that's a really big thing for him. He says that what they've done with the engine has allowed them to express themselves more aerodynamically. So let's see how that goes. But Gary, looking at the car itself, what catches your eye technically? Well, it's a neat and tidy package. That's the first thing to say. There's nothing, you know, you blatantly jumps out at you. Whether it's renders or whether it's the real car, doesn't really matter. I'm sure the real car will follow the trend of what we're seeing. Um, there's nothing sort of jumping out as, to me as it's a, it's a, it's cornered, it's boxed itself in anywhere. You know, it's actually sort of fairly, fairly open, open ended. Um, front wing looks like it's going to be a, a um, a separate front flap, which is what I like because I think it's uh, important for these regulations to get um, as consistent an airflow as possible into the underneath of the nose and that leading edge of the front wing. But there is no slot gap separators on it, so that front wing flap will not be stiff enough to hold itself up like that without them. So there's obviously parts missing there. The trailing edge flap has obviously been trimmed dramatically. It's a very short cord, very shallow angle. Um... I, I don't see how that will create the front downforce, but it it does look as though if they do change that profile, it will still be quite highly uh, inboard loaded. And I don't think that's a good solution for uh, a ground effect car. I think the, the loading needs to be out about the inside of the front tyre somewhere so you can actually uh, run that high loaded area of the front wing and the tyre squirt that goes inside the tyre. You can actually try and combine those two to, to work together. Um, by regulation, you have to have the front wing flaps dropping down into the bottom of the end plate, as we can see on all of the cars. There's nothing. There's nothing trick there. You know, whether you have a a better solution at that area or a, a worse solution, the difference would be would be very very small. The uh, the main difference is the inboard end of the front flaps, how that feeds the underfloor. Um, front suspension wise, again. If the renders are right, it's conventional sort of uh, top and bottom wishbone with a pushrod operated inboard suspension system. The nose itself has got um, some sort of more curvature in the top of it, a bit like the Williams, so the airflow can 
sweep off the top of the nose um, and go underneath the, the car into the center line of the car much easier. Um, if you imagine just sort of taking a horizontal slice through the car, what you want to do is try and make it so that, that airflow will go around those corners easier. But that means you've got a bigger cross section um, in the nose section. So it's a bit of a compromise between as small a cross section as possible to withstand the crash test requirements or a slightly bigger cross section, more bulbous, but get slightly better airflow on it. Um, those compromises are just, you know, they're what you dream up every day of the week. Um, if you if you try to do some trick with a crash test, it's it's heavier. And we know these cars are heavy enough, so you, you want to try and make things as light as possible and get good airflow on them, but still pass the crash test. Um, as I say, front suspension-wise, the, 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 the sort of trick thing with the front suspension, if you look at the Mercedes, you know, the, the, the steering link, the steering track rod is in line with the top wishbone. Now, when you add the two of those together, I think there's a ratio of three and a half to one. So in other words, the, the thickness of the aerodynamic section, you can only have three and a half times that length of cord. Um, so if you take basically lining it up there and you do it correctly, if you line up the track rod with the top leg of the front wishbone, you can have seven to one as a ratio. So you have a very long cord for a very thin section. Um, whereas if they're out of line with each other, you can only have three and a half to one. So it hasn't got as big of an effect on the wake of the front wing. So the, the weight coming off the trailing edge of the front wing, you want to try and use the suspension components to pull it back down again and try and make it run more horizontal for the front of the side pods. So again, it's one of those compromise things on the Renault, or sorry, Renault, no, Alpine. Um, you know, they haven't quite got the track rod in line with the top wishbone, and it looks like it's an individual component. And sometimes if if it if it's not that critical to to help the front uh, wing wake, it's it's better to put a round component in there, or a simple component, just because it's not uh, flow-sensitive. Um, if you put an aerodynamic shape in there at 3.5 to 1 ratio, it becomes flow-sensitive, so you have to get it in the right direction. Um, so I don't see anything wrong with what... what uh, Alpine I got there, it's but nothing too exciting. Um, and then we can get to the leading edge of the side pods. You know, it's got the letterbox inlet, a bit like the Ferrari, but it's quite a good solution because it gets you the top of the, the uh, inlet as high as possible. It gets you um, the bottom of the inlet as high as possible and you use the maximum width, more or less, for the side pod inlet. So you've got a maximum opening for the minimum uh, vertical section intrusion. Um, and that's what's important because airflow over the top of the car, the, the wake of the front wing, by the time it gets to there, is actually traveling pretty horizontal. Um, so you want to not get any separation problems on the top of the side pod, and you shouldn't do with this solution. Um, and you want as, as bluff an area and then as big an undercut as possible underneath the side pod to get the airflow around the side of it um, and force some of that airflow outwards to give you a bit of outwash to help the scavenging underneath the front corner of the floor to help the downforce from the diffuser as such. So um, it's got all those all those bits. It's just about making all those bits work for you as opposed to against you. Um, the, the the sort of outer turning vanes, I think, for the floor, you might call it the outer barge boards, they're as big as possible. They do they look a pretty good job to pick up that um, tyre squash, the airflow that's going around the bottom of the tyre because it's inboard a bit at the bottom and outboard quite a lot at the top, so it will pick up that tyre wake, the low pressure behind the tyre, quite well. Um, and then it goes into the coke bottle, 
Coke bottle area, which is a pretty sort of common thing really with these cars. The side pod sweeps in and sweeps down, so it arrives at a decent sort of Coke bottle area quite quite quickly. Um, so yeah, quite neat and tidy and as far as that's concerned. just needs all the bits to work together. One thing Gary is looking at, it, um, the side pod. So you've got this um, short downward ramp side pod and it's separated out quite distinctly from the engine cover on this one, isn't it? Um, yep. The cars we've seen so far that have had the slats on, the Aston and the Ferrari, they have like a, a, a very flat side pod and the cars that we've seen with the down ramp don't have the f- slats on. Is that, well, are they trying to sort of have their cake and eat it there? Yeah, it could be. I mean, the, the side pods themselves, it's its hard to separate all the parts, but the side pods itself don't look that far different from the Alfa Tori. I mean, they're a pretty neat um, section that sweeps in and sweeps down pretty tidily, um, and they don't really have the louvers in there. But, I mean, the, the thing about the, the radiator exits, uh, in reality, in my time, and I'm sure it's still very similar, the, the thing you did was you go around the car, you put a lot of... Um, uh, sensors on the surface of the car and you try and find the low pressure areas on the surface where the air's uh, being pulled uh, dramatically um, or the surface is being pulled dramatically by the flow coming across it and you sort of try and put an opening in that position so that some airflow will feed into it and you know you can trim these louvers the, the length of them or the section of them or whatever so that you just try and minimize that low pressure area and keep the flow attached better um, so I would say you know you search around the car to try and find those solutions, the best solutions to it. I don't, I don't really see what they've done as wrong, um, because at the end of the day, you know you have to have exits, and the worst exit you could ever have is really just right at the back of the car at the rear axle centre line, which is what the regulations call for. Um, but the, the regulations have allowed you to put louvers in the top panels in certain area. Um, to a maximum width. Um, so I, I think it's just about the, the compromise. Every every radiator flow, every radiator exit will hurt the aerodynamic performance of the car to a certain degree, and it's just about minimising that. And it's really hard in detail to... It's like somebody sort of predicting the vortex generation of a certain component on the car. It's now on impossible unless you get all the data. Same with the, with the exits. You know, you just look around the car to get the best package you can, the best compromise you can, Um and, and that's all you can do. And then you, you put your openings to suit that. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. Aramco continuously pushed the limits of engineering. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance, and drive ongoing human-led progress. Aramco, powered by How. We should also take a look at the wider objectives of this team. Mark, Alpine CEO Laurent Rossi said the aim is to finish at least fifth in the Constructors' Championship. That's pretty conservative for a full works team. So is that managing expectations or harsh reality? <laughs> Both, I think. it's. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty modest ambition for a, a team that's been works-funded for how many years now? Quite, quite a few years. Um, also, it's... Some of the some of the other things that Luca Mayer was saying um, it suggested that you know that at some point until until the cost cap was enshrined, it sounded like he was of the mind that um, the, 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 he was going to switch the program off, and so the 
the rebranding of it of, of of Alpine was actually a way that he had of uh, I guess selling to the board the the justification for the F one program, and that it uh, he made it he made it central to the rebranding of Alpine and made made the rebranding of Alpine in, in the automotive sector the big justification. So yeah, it 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 does it it just doesn't give the sense of. Um, Everyone pulling together and all being focused on making this thing as fantastic as it could be. It, it, it you know, it, all right. Now we've got the cost cap in place. Maybe we can sort of get everything more aligned with in, in terms of objectives from the corporate side and feeding into the race team. But it, it does just every just a few few little things that both each each of the those bosses said suggested to me that it 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 hasn't been a a very uh let's say a happy a happy background to the whole project no i think i think if you look at it in a bit more detail from from 2014 really you know when I mean, they had some success with red bull um as renault at that point in time as an engine supplier but but they really had their hands tied behind their back with it with a power unit it's never really it's never really been classified as a front-running power unit um for for various reasons i'm sure but you know, at the end of the day, they, they've never really had the extra teams behind it to give them input. Um, once they lost Red Bull, so they've they've been sort of standalone, I suppose you might call it. I mean, when McLaren moved um, from the Honda to the to the Renault unit, um, the, you know, they they didn't just rush down the road. They didn't really sort of just find suddenly they had loads and loads of power and they were looking pretty good. It wasn't like that. So that, I think they've that as a team, as a, a, a constructors team. They've have had their hands tied behind the back with the power unit. Now this is the first time that I've seen a sort of real move, which we would consider to be in the right direction with the power unit. Yes, they might have some reliability problems, but you know you can live with that if you're quick on you're quick at the time. If you're actually quick and the power unit's good, and you have a few reliability issues, you can sort of like get your head down and try and overcome them. And there is a scope in the regulations for them to rectify that situation. So they've got to they've got to really try very hard to show the potential of actually outnight performance. Might not happen every weekend. That's you know that's acceptable because of reliability issues. But if it happens when they are up and running, then I think that uh, people will see the light at the end of the tunnel to to try and get the solutions to the problem. Yeah, there's a lot on that power unit for this year because of the engine freeze that's kicking in. And although you can make changes for reliability, safety, or cost, and also minimal acceptable changes there's a few little degrees of freedom in the uh, in the regulations but they're very minor beyond that you need to get some special dispensation so they could be locked into not being great if they haven't made the step they've aimed for yeah and i think i think that dispensation needs to come with the backing of the teams as well the other manufacturers to to accept that it is actually a reliability issue that has been missed as opposed to a reliability issue that has been planned. And that's a very fine line because, you know, if you were going to build a power unit and, you know, I don't know, you, you knew that it, it would, you couldn't make it last if you had X width of main bearings or X width of big end bearings or something, and you designed the engine to suit that, uh, looking for a solution to it later on in life. Um you know, you knew it would give you a performance advantage, but you had to find that solution, but you didn't have time to find that solution. And the other teams might stand up and say, hang on a minute, you know, that's pretty stupid engineering if you've done that. So sorry, you're stuck with it. 
So it'll be interesting to see how that all unfolds and who who has to give uh, has to give permission to actually change things. You know, if the if for example, if the shaft on the turbo just keeps breaking, are they going to be allowed to alter it, make it different, make you know different mountings in it or whatever, or do they just have to say right? You know, no, you designed it that way. Find a solution to that problem without changing anything, which might just be material changes or whatever. But it uh, you can't change the specific design of it. So, so it's going to be interesting. That's a, another grey area, I suppose, that's been created, and we'll have to wait and see how that unfolds. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be some lobbying out there from some quarters, but let's see how that plays out. But for Alpine as a whole, Lauren Rossi last year he recast it as a 100 race. Uh, schedule timeline to get back to being rate to being able to race at the front so that's 2024 basically now from the point where he he said that so let's see how they progress on that gary moving off alpine we have seen the real Haas on track Haas released a few images there's the odd video clip there's a lot more detail to be seen on that car compared to when we talked about the launch renders back at the start of the month so what did you make of the bits and pieces we could see on that car Initial overall impression, you know, it's it's just a, as a as a sort of global view, it's it's quite like the Ferrari in its in its sort of concept. Yeah, there's you know, there's obviously detailed differences here and there. I wouldn't expect it to be different from the Ferrari in reality because you know, if you take as an example, if you take sort of Red Bull and, and Alpha Tori, um, you know, Red Bull are the mothership as such, and Alpha Tori take everything they can or they want from Red Bull. So it's a, it's a case of not, you know, not having to design all your car and waste all that research money yourself. And, that, and that's a good thing, to be honest. Um, and, and I think Haas and, are aligned with Ferrari in the, sa- in the same way, but they're actually taking more probably than Alfa Tori. So it's not a surprise that the sort of visually the car overall looks quite similar in its little way. I think we have to see in detail a bit more as to how they've gone about some things. But if you're packaging X radiator, X cooling system for the Ferrari engine into your side pods, then it's no, you know, it's only right that the side pods follow the same sort of shape, roughly. Um, There's no reason why why it shouldn't do that. Um, There might be different radiuses here and different undercuts there slightly, but they can't be that dramatically different. The the more important thing for me is where you get to sort of things like the front wing. Um, That is supposed to, that is a standalone item. The teams have to design their own thing. And when you look at the the Haas one, you know, it's it's heavily loaded across its its span. Um, The outer parts drop into the end plates as the regulations require, but it's heavily loaded across its span as is the Ferrari. Slightly different here and there, you know. It's not the same piece. It's not the same thing out the same mould by any means, but it's a very similar philosophy. So it, that's the sort of area I think where we have to sort of let the teams um, start to be vocal about what their interpretation of the regulations are. And I think we're starting to see that even now. We're starting to see some teams saying they're very surprised at the variety of cars that they're seeing, um, and other teams that are sort of saying, "Well, there's some teams that are too alike each other for for no real reason." So. I think it's a neat and tidy package. You know, they asked themselves, say they were the ones that started probably earlier than anybody else on the two thousand, uh, two, the 2022 car. Um, but again, it's it's about seeing it in, in, in a little bit more detail, to be honest, to see how it all happens. But, you know, you take sort of the rollover bar area, very similar to the Ferrari. That means they're not cooling much from, from the ducts up there, but that's because of Ferrari. 
But then they got the little, you know, vertical turning vanes uh, each side of the the rollover bar, which is nothing to do with the cooling, nothing to do with anything. But it is someone that Ferrari had on it. Um, so who had it first? Was it Ferrari or was it that was a Haas? But the interesting thing will be as we go further down the road, whenever you know people can see from these regulations that there is a, a you know there is a sort of path to to the to the ultimate somewhere down the road, um, and everything will converge at some point in time. So it's a, it's interesting to see what what level of and the words copying really what level of copying you can do and still be uh, be happy about it, still be you know acceptable within the regulations. Yeah, it sounds like there's going to be plenty of that with a lot of teams admitting there's a bit more scope almost for direct copying given how tight the regs are. The one thing that encouraged me quite a bit, Mark, they have put all this effort into the car and and, and we could see in what was issued from the filming day, there are details on that car. They've got that little raised shark fin taking advantage of a little leeway in the, in the regulations. There does seem to be a car there that justifies the effort even though we haven't seen it from every single angle. Yeah, I, I think they've been um, quite quite pro- progressive in their thinking, whether it um, whether it's joined up progressive or just um, not joined up. Only time will tell. But it's um, it's certainly not a conservative design, and um, there's been a there's been a genuine effort to push forward. Um, and it's just sort of going back to what Gary was saying with the Alpine power unit. You know, it's t- there comes a time where you have to say, well, this this what the philosophy that we've followed so far it, it, it's only going to get us so far we need to we need to make the next step and there might be an element of risk attached to that um but it looks like Ferrari have done something like that with uh, the concept of their car so yeah it's um it's it's one of those it, it's another one of those imponderables that this uh, this season's probably got more of pre-season's probably got more of than any any pre-season we've uh, we've gone into so far Yes, we'll only start to get an impression of things later this week when testing starts. We're all heading off to Barcelona tomorrow, so we'll be able to get a good close look at the cars and see a little bit of how they're performing on track. won't really be until later on that we get a clear view of performance, but there'll be some little pointers and ideas with the three days of running in Barcelona. Thanks very much to Gary Mark for your insight. There's loads to read on therace.com and don't forget the hyphen, including Gary's in-depth technical analysis. Check out our YouTube channel too as we've had a look at every single one of the cars that we've seen so far there. And as you're all podcast fans, if you haven't already done so, check back in our feed because we've got podcasts on everyone's launch going all the way back to the Haas early in February. With testing fast approaching, the car reveals aren't quite over yet and we're still yet to have a proper look at the new Red Bull. So join us later this week for everything you need to know about that car and also for our daily podcasts on each day of running in Barcelona. Thanks for listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series.